Good morning. We want to welcome those watching online. We're in Matthew chapter 7, so you can take God's word and turn there a while. I had the privilege last week of actually watching the service online, so I heard everything that was said. I think the only comment I would have about Dr. Kimes' message was, if I was going to sneak a hamburger behind my wife's back, it would not be a Big Mac. I'd at least settle for five guys or something a little larger. We're talking about asking this morning, so let's go to prayer and ask before we look into the scripture. Let's pray together. Father, we appreciate through your grace and love that we can be here this morning. And we humbly submit ourselves before you as we come to worship to an audience of one. And we ask that your spirit give us wisdom, give us courage to apply what you speak to us. We ask for hearts that are willing to be broken and to be open and to see the possibilities of what you have for us. What an incredible privilege we have to be here this morning. And so we want to thank you as we come here. We do have a lot of ask, Lord, some that we speak out loud, some we keep in our hearts. We ask for those people that need a physical touch. There are some that struggle with a disease that just cripples their body. We ask that you put your healing hand upon them. We, we ask for others, Lord, that have a disease of the mind It cripples the way they think. And again, we just ask for your healing hand upon those and and all the relationships. For those that lost loved ones, we pray for those and ask for comfort for those. This past week that celebrated new birth, uh, stories of people who made decisions for you, we celebrate that and ask for your continued guidance in their life. Most of all, Lord, we ask that um, we would be like you, So teach us what that means this morning. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. I remember, in fact, I'm probably one of those speakers who have said this. Where you go to conferences, you go to seminars, and when they do a Q&A session, the person says, now listen, there are no such things as stupid questions. Have you heard that before? I've probably said that because you're trying to encourage people to ask what's on their mind and heart. Well, I have news for you this morning. There are some questions that are stupid. (laughs) If you ever golfed with anybody, you know there's stupid questions that abound. You hit a ball, it goes into a lake, and someone says, why did you hit it there? You know, it's not like we tried. But I think one of my favorite outlets for stupid questions is Super Bowl Media Day. It's when the reporters get to ask all the players any question they want. And I'm fascinated at the kinds of questions. It's a hotbed for stupid questions. One one interview, they were asking Joe Montana, quarterback for the 49ers, getting ready for the Super Bowl. And the reporter says this to Joe. Tell me, why do they call you Boomer? Now, anybody that knows football knows that Boomer was the quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals, not for the 49ers. And he looks at him and says, well, they actually don't. (laughs) 
Boomer Esiason is the quarterback for Cincinnati. Tennessee Titans defensive tackle, Joe Salva. The reporter says this, so Joe, what is your relationship to the football? Now, how do you answer that? To his question, to his wisdom, he said, strictly platonic. I thought that was good. Dallas Cowboys, Emmett Smith. Question, what are you going to wear in the game on Sunday? I mean, what do you even say to that? Then there's stupid and insensitive questions. I remember the one interview with Jim Pluckett, quarterback for Oakland Raiders. And they were asking questions about his family and his upbringing. And if you know anything about him, he comes from a special needs family. His mom was blind, his father was blind, and his dad had passed away. So questions shifted away from that. And finally, at the very end, one reporter says, Jimmy, Jimmy, I want to make sure I have this right. Was it dead mom and blind father or blind mother and dead father? I thought, wow. Stupid questions. Well, I got good news this morning. Are you aware that God can handle our stupid questions? I mean, what a privilege it is that we can go before God and we can ask. And he will listen. And he will respond. Now, we've been hearing all along through this sermon that context matters. Context matters because so often in Scripture, our humanity, we attempt to manipulate context. Because we want to see it a certain way. We want to see life our way. And we want to impose ourselves into the truth rather than the truth imposing in upon us. So our context for this sermon is the kingdom of God. Which means that we go according to the core values of the kingdom. And we've learned that they value things that are eternal over things that will not last. Storing up treasures here on earth versus storing up treasures in heaven. We talked about that the last few weeks. We learned that our vision is different. As followers of Jesus, we see the world as it is and we see the world as it could be. In the kingdom of God... We voluntarily bow our knees in humility to an audience of one. While the world's enslaved to things they believe they control, we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So the context, our core is God and his kingdom and his righteousness. And here's what this means. Jesus will define you or the world will define you. Think about that. Just two choices. Jesus will define you or the world will define you. And there's too many believers today that allow the world to define them and they impose their vision and their heart and their context into life rather than seeking first his kingdom. Now, when you consider asking, you have to ask, what are you asking for? And here's something I want you to consider as we read the text. If we seek the wrong things, then we will ask for the wrong things. If we seek the wrong things, then we will ask for the wrong things. It talks about our hearts. 
There's good things that we can seek that are not where God desires us to be. And they will be the wrong things. Let's look at our text. Matthew 7. You can follow with me in your, script, your Bibles or on the screen. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Asking God questions. Now, I think we first have to ask ourselves questions. We have to ask ourselves about our hearts, about what we see. Think about GBC. By the way, whose church is this? Church of Jesus Christ. He's the head. We are the body. He's the brain. We respond to his calling. But so often when we come to church life, we ask the wrong questions. We ask backward-facing questions. And I don't think they're the wrong questions, but we kind of stop here. We ask questions like this. Well, what's broken? What needs fixed? What's wrong? Rather than asking what I call forward-facing questions. Questions like, what future do we imagine for ourselves? I mean, what kind of church has God called us to be? How do we aspire? Who do we aspire to become together? How might we take responsibility to leverage our talent in service to our shared vision? Now, again, remember our context. There's only one person who knows the way out of the grave, and that's Jesus. He defines himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He says that truth will set us free, and only in Jesus can we deal with the lies around us. Rabbi Zacharias said this, true freedom is not doing whatever we wish, but in doing what we ought. And Jesus says we ought to be seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. And if we seek that, we understand then that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. That's a statement of reality. It's a statement of possibility. So we ask questions that push us forward to be like Christ rather than always living in the past. Now, these truths should help us determine our asking. And again, already, think about the context, what Jesus said about what we should ask for in prayer. Remember Matthew 5, verse 44? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray. Ask for those who persecute you. He told us not to pray like hypocrites that repeat religious phrases over and over and over again that have no heart in those. It's not the repetition that matters. It's the heart in that repetition. But he gave us guidelines. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And we found there that prayer begins with God's interests, not ours. And yes, in that prayer, we learned that He's concerned with our needs. And three predominant needs that he pointed out that we need is the need for forgiveness, both to receive it and to give it. Two, for guidance. And three, for protection. 
asking about what God's interests are. Think about that when you go to prayer. God, what is it you would have for me today? God, who is it I can bless? God, show me how to honor you today. God, show me my needs. God, who can I help today? See, those are forward, future-oriented, possibility questions that we are called to ask. You know, so often we t- take passages like this and we, we spend it on asking for selfish reasons. Or we take our cues from culture. Now, you know this, but I want to remind you that sin corrupts everything. And we say things like that God will give me the desires of my heart. And that is a true statement only if our desires of our heart are aligned with his desires. It goes back to the Lord's Prayer. So a lot of people come along, and I remember one young man who came and pulled up in a brand new pickup truck to a men's Bible study, and we were kind of curious how he bought this because we knew we were helping him out with other kinds of things. He didn't have money, and a month later he gets repossessed, and he says, I don't understand. He says, he says God gave me the desire of my heart and made it possible to get this brand new pickup truck, and, and now he's taking it away. And so often our desires are linked with this world rather than linked with his kingdom. So James says things like this, James chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? They're at war with this seeking first the kingdom. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. And we've learned in the sermon what murder is. It's just not physical killing. We can actually kill someone's character. We can kill their reputation. And we know in our culture of accusation how that happens so often. And it's tragic. You covet and cannot obtain. So we go in debt to obtain things that we cannot afford. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. I know there's some churches that preach the theology of health and wealth. Just believe because God wants you to have good things. And we forget. God defines what those good things are. And that God has the right when we ask to say no or not yet. When I read this text, I love the whole Analogy of when you look at a parent-child relationships, and that's part of the context. And let me ask you this question. Do parents give their kids everything they want? No. Why not? Well, there's just some things they can't give them. I love little kids because little kids are allowed to ask stupid questions. Amen? Take them to a zoo. Their lack of understanding and innocence when they see all those animals Normally they ask what? Dad, mom, can we have one of those? And they're pointing to a lion. Of course we say, no. That's not even not yet. But you know, we learn three lessons about kids asking. Number one, they see a world of possibilities. And that's how we come before Christ need to live. Two, they see a parent who can give them anything they want. They have no concept of of money and limits and boundaries. And three, you know what a child wants? 
and all they're asking, they really desire to have the relationship and the freedom to be, to live their design. Of course, we as parents, because sin corrupts everything, out of fear instead of out of love, we seek to control because we know everything that could happen. Think about vision. Do we pray and ask with great expectation? I mean, what do you ask for GBC here? What do you ask in terms of the vision about where we're headed and where we're going and who we're going to become? God will give us the desires of our heart when our hearts are aligned with him. Now, there's a few principles I want to draw from this passage. Here's the first. Jesus is telling us, first of all, that we have full conviction that we will be heard. Ask, seek, knock. They're all direct commands. But think of the progression. And think about, again, the whole context. We talk about a parent-child relationship. Think of what a child does when they have questions. If they're playing by themselves, they start asking, and no one's around, what do they do? They get up and they seek. And if they can't find one of their parents, well, they're still asking the questions, what do they do? They start knocking on doors that are closed, don't they? And sometimes those doors are closed for a reason, amen? Amen. (laughs) But think about a child. They ask, they keep asking, they keep seeking, they keep knocking. We have full conviction that we will be heard. God says, be persistent, be persistent, be persistent. Number two, we have full confidence of promises. He says, when you ask, seek, and knock, you will receive, you will find, and doors will be opened. Now, at this point, people usually have several objections. I've heard people say this down through my years. Number one, if this is true, if God is all-knowing, and if God is all-loving, then why do we have to ask, seek, and knock on doors? Why do we have to persuade him of things that we desire? Now, in part, the answer to that, and again, just in part, is that this reason has to do with us, not him. See, the question is not whether or not he's ready to give, but are we ready to receive? Two words. Submission and humility. Now, salvation is a good example of this. The only thing keeping you from Christ is you. It's the lies you're willing to believe about you, and it's the lies that you're willing to believe about him. So when you ask, and that's a good thing to ask, you will receive. Wisdom's another. James chapter 1 verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, we, we quote that verse so often, and it's a good verse to quote, but we forget the context. Let me read the context to you. In verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's talking about really difficult, hard situations. But God says, listen, wisdom is something I want to give you. Ask, seek, knock. 
Now, here's another objection. I've heard people say, well, prayer is unproductive because I ask and God did, God, did, God did not give me what I asked for. Well, part of the reason is our selfishness. We read that in James chapter 4. And I've, again, seen people ask for new things and by faith go out only to have them repossessed. But there's also in that context what we call unselfish prayer, where you pray for things like physical healing. And, and we know that God does heal, and we know that God gives according to his will. And faith requires us to trust and live accordingly to his will. Now, I am not even going to attempt to answer the question this morning of why he heals some and not others. In my own life, he chose not to heal my mom of cancer when she was in her early 50s. At least healing in our sense. Remember, part of the kingdom of God is just not of this world, it's of another world. And when we get there, I think we're going to understand a whole lot more than we do here. But there was asking. So those are two common objections. But why do we ask? I have to think about what some of our greatest needs are in our world. Jesus said things like this. Um, He looked out of a crowd. He had compassion. And he said, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord sends workers into the harvest. That's a great need. Another great need is unity, John 17, where he asked the Father that we may be one as he and his Father are one, that the world may know that he was sent. In the letters to the church in Revelation, in one of the churches, and again, he's writing these to the churches, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's actually telling us to ask him to come in. There are churches that literally shut Jesus out. They're too busy with their own little worlds, their own doctrinal statements, their own policy that Jesus himself is not welcome because he might do something they don't want him to do. So there are things that we should be asking for. Unity and workers into the harvest and that Jesus should come in. But if I were to ask you about what our greatest needs are, everyone would list their version of that answer to that question. And since I'm here and you're there, I get to put forth one of the greatest needs that I think that we need today in America, in our world. And it's wisdom. It's discernment. And the reason I chose this is because it it correlates with what Dr. Kine preached on last week. Remember the log in their eyes? That people were undiscerning. They had all their critical judgment about everybody else around here, but there was this massive beam sticking in their own eye. I think today we need wisdom. And what Jesus says is that we cannot be discerning without divine counsel. We have to ask for it. We have to listen. We have to seek. We have to knock. Take the Bible. If you haven't noticed, it's not a comprehensive book of rules for every situation. Now, what I mean by that is it doesn't spell out, do this when this happens. It doesn't come along and say, well, when you're standing in line 
for a Big Mac at a place where your wife doesn't want you to be, what should you really do? Now, it does give us guidance. It gives us moral boundaries. It gives us core values. And we can illustrate this with sporting events. Think about basketball. Basketball has a set of rules. It has a court you play on. It has hoops. It has round balls of a certain size. It has X amount of players. They're allowed to do certain things. It has rules because it makes the game interesting. And so the Bible gives us those boundaries. It says things like this. We are made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God in most cases, we do not give stones for food and snakes for fish. And the point here has to do with parents do not intentionally deceive their children to bring harm to them. Now, do some do this in our culture? Absolutely. We have parents that do not parent very well, and they bring harm to their kids because of their own addictions, because of their own sin, because of their own lies that they've chosen to believe. But on the whole, he says parents want to do loving things for their children. They won't deceive them. Luke 11 adds another illustration. It talks about eggs and scorpions. And they say when a scorpion curls up, it kind of looks like an egg. I remember being in Ecuador out in the bush, and they told us every single morning to check your shoes because scorpions like to go in there and sleep. And the last thing you want to do is put that shoe on with one there. But the point is this. Parents normally want to do good things for their kids. So God wants us to have and to be good. In Luke 11, there's this verse added in verse 13 to this whole section. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now there's a good thing to ask for. The Holy Spirit. In fact, he's called the spirit of wisdom. Here's the point. Jesus is telling us that we have this very generous God. And we have to learn to ask and to trust. And sometimes we'll hear yeses and sometimes we'll hear noes and sometimes we'll hear not yets. But understand that his desire for us is nothing but the best. Because we have this generous God, we are then called to live out this generosity. Now, let me illustrate this in the context of Jesus' sermon that we've talked about so far. Uh, And I kind of want to incorporate this with everything we talked about. Now, you heard me say this before. We're all biased. We have to admit that. We have a certain framework, a certain ideology. It comes from past experiences. It comes from present life. But our bias, according to Jesus, is supposed to be the kingdom of God. So we evaluate on those terms and not on other terms. We kind of set aside all those other agendas. And we have to do that in community because we speak truth to each other. Think about, in our culture, what gets reported and what doesn't. Chick-fil-A has been getting a lot of bad press. Now think about Chick-fil-A in terms of prayer and think about seeking God first 
and think about doing the right thing regardless. Okay, here's a story you probably haven't heard about. Remember this past winter when the ice storm hit the south? And the mainstream media showed footage of miles and miles of cars stranded on frozen interstates. Remember that? There were several national news broadcasts that reported school kids trapped in buses for almost 24 hours because of all the ice and the parents going frantic, wondering where their kids were. In all this icy gloom and doom, I bet you didn't hear about this story about an owner of a Chick-fil-A and how in prayer he asked what to do And here was the response. Highway 280 in Birmingham, Alabama. Mark Meadows, owner of Chick-fil-A. They had to close early the day of the storm, sent all his employees home. However, they found out real soon the employees could not make it home because all the roads had cars everywhere. They couldn't get out of the place. So he went to prayer saying, what should we do? So him and his employees, because they were there, fired up the kitchen. They began preparing chicken sandwiches as fast as they could. And they prepared several hundred sandwiches on an hourly basis. And then him and his staff headed out and began distributing hot meals to stranded motorists on both sides of 280. So they just started feeding as many people as they could. Some of the drivers tried to pay them, but they refused to take a single penny. Audrey Pitt, the manager of Chick-fil-A, explained why. This company is based on taking care of people and loving people before you're worried about money or profit. We're just trying to follow the model that we've all worked for so long and the model we've come to love. There's really nothing else we could do except try to help people any way we could. Breakfast came. They did the same thing. They actually let motors come in and they had the whole place covered with people sleeping that were elderly and needed a warm place to stay. Now, that came from him asking and his employees asking God, what is it you would have to do? Did it come at great personal cost? I bet you the amount of sandwiches they put out for breakfast and for supper and for lunch personally costs him a large sum of money. But he asked and he listened and he responded. One of the sources that came, and this came through the blogs, it didn't come through uh, any media sources. Um, You ask how I found out about it. I have a friend who owns a Chick-fil-A just south of York. And, of course, this story was held out as an example of what they want to be, so it's where we got it from. As one poor source put it, said, they simply lived up to the words of Matthew 25, 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. You know, when we learn to ask God the right questions, God, what are you up to? God, help me to see you in the midst of all this negative chaos. Then we learn to ask each other the right questions. See, it's that relationship first that moves down to the kind of questions we ask each other. Let me give another illustration. I've been fascinated reading about our brains and how they're hardwired and how our, our you know, like pornography and drugs and everything else impact that. One of the studies coming out now is that with all the social media devices, 
that we have at hand and the constant negativity that we get from those, how it literally rewires our brains. Brendan Harvey was a photographer and also a writer who traveled around the world documenting stories. It was this past year, in 2016, he was just so overwhelmed with the amount of negativity that was coming out that he said, I needed to shift, and he started asking God, God, what is it you want me to do in the midst of this? And then he remembered when he was a little boy that whenever he'd see scary things in the news, his mom would say, look, remember Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? And remember those? We're going to show our age. Remember Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers. You will always find people helping everywhere. So in his journal, he wrote, I see brokenness, injustice, wars, famine, things that are pretty rife. But he made a decisive shift after praying and seeking God in this. He said, and he started something called the good newspaper. So instead of reporting the negative news, everywhere he goes, I find people doing incredible things in very difficult situations. So now he prints stories of hope and stories of victory and stories of people engaging that for whatever reason, our mainstream media just kind of lets go of. Now, I say this for all this reason. I'm going to invite the worship team up because we're going to close with a song, a song about our good, good father. And I hope you understand this morning that we do have a good father. But a very dangerous place to live is asking God what his desires are ahead of ours. You will never know what he in turn will ask of you and us. Amen? But it's where we have to live. It's where we want to live. In fact, when we live there, it's a whole lot more interesting than we're living in our self-interest, right? Because self-interest, we do what? We fight and we argue and we get upset and we divide. When we're engaged in what God desires us, our differences unite us in terms of one mission. So let's learn to ask him the right things and let's learn to ask ourselves the right things. Amen? Let's stand as we celebrate through song that we have a good, good father.